welcome, Dr. Yashi Kirikosh-Bilinski. We're very, very happy to have you here this evening. Yashi is curator at Sir John Soane's Museum in London. And I think the story that we're telling this fall is about something that we haven't been uh, very public about in uh, the uh, little over 20 years that Magazine 3 uh, has existed. I think many of you know that uh, we have at least publicly focused a lot on commissions we have worked with a, a number of artists for many years invited them to make new works of art and then we have uh, created exhibitions around this and many of you have i hope seen uh, shows like uh, santiago sierra uh, tom friedman pippi lotterist and so forth parallelly to this a collection has been built these commissions are part of this but there is a collection of around uh, a bit over 600 works that we have. And uh, as curators, we have been looking at this totality of works in the last couple of years. And of course, we have been uh, thinking about how to work with this in a sense, uh, in a way that makes sense, not only to just bring the pieces out, but to see how we can use this and uh, most importantly, show it in a way that it's interesting for, for the public. I think it became clear to us that this collection, of course, has a life of its own. We didn't really know this, but it became clear to us in the process around Thrice Upon a Time that this collection has changed this institution beyond the people who works with it. This exhibition, Thrice Upon a Time, at least to me, is an example of that. We're, in a sense, moving towards becoming a museum, and it's the artworks that are, are sort of pushing us in that uh, direction. So basically, Thrice Upon a Time is an exhibition that you all can take in, watch, and it's the starting point for something that we will be showing from next fall on, 2011, and that's that we will dedicate some parts of Magazine 3 to permanent installations of our collection. And the idea, we will test this for a while, and the idea is to change this every year. So in a sense, it feels to us like we have two legs. We, we just weren't aware of the fact that we were, in a sense, it was a really good leg, but we've been jumping on one leg for a long time. And now we have the possibility of continuing, as we have before, with showing these temporary exhibitions. But uh, you will all be able to get to know this collection and come back here and see things that you recognize and see them again and again. So it's two different ways, really, that we will be working on. So this feeling of moving in this direction led us to looking at different places around the world. And Sir John Soane's museum was, of course, uh, the first place I wanted to revisit. And Yashi was kind enough to uh, show me around this spring at the museum. And uh, I guess that encounter is one of the reasons that you were able to come back to us here tonight. So we will be very happy to listen to you now. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, for that very warm welcome. Um, the title of this talk, The Museum of Museums, um, refers to what I think is a very specific and very unusual aspect to Sir Johnson's museum. The museum is the oldest architecture museum in the world, the first museum of architecture in the world. It's a national museum. Um, it belongs to the British nation. It's the smallest national museum in the country. 
And it's also the second oldest national museum after the British Museum. We date our founding as a public institution from 1809. But what's very specific about the Sone, and what, what I think really chimes in with contemporary patterns of collecting, is that the museum itself, institutionally, and in the way in which the collections were formed, acts as a type of critique of early 19th century patterns of collecting, of creating a public museum. Hence the title, The Museum of Museums. It encapsulates, I think, within itself, within its collections, these different ways of approaching public art and how it should be displayed. But, of course, as a museum of architecture, one has to, of course, talk about Sir John Soane initially um, in order to understand the significance of the collection. These two paintings, these two portraits of Soane, act as sort of benchmarks in his career. The first one by Hunemann shows Sohn as a young student. He wasn't a knight then. He didn't have the title Sir. He even had a slightly different surname. It didn't have an E on the end of it. He changed his surname when he married in 1784 to distance himself from his rather humble origins. Because he was in fact born, he was born in 1753, born the son of a bricklayer. He was raised in a small town outside Reading, not far from London, a place called Goring-on-Thames. As a young boy, his father died, and his elder brother took on the role of head of the family. Now, we don't know that much about Soane's early life. As I mentioned, he changes his surname slightly in later years. In many respects, he tries to distance himself from these humble origins. There's even um, a, a rumor that he may have been illegitimate, in fact. Goring-on-Thames is a small village not particularly distinguished. It's not far from Reading. This is the church in Goring-on-Thames. It's possible that Soane's father worked on the belfry of the church, the tower that you see here. In later years, Soane would return to Goring with his friend, his great friend, Turner. Both Turner and Soane were avid fishermen, and of course the Thames, being not far from Goring, was the perfect location. This watercolour showing the church from a slightly different angle was in fact possibly painted um, in the presence of Soane on one of these fishing trips. The peculiarity of Reading, um, where Goring is, is that it was a very literate town. In the 18th century, it was one of the first towns outside London to have its own newspaper. There were also a series of very good schools in Goring, and unusually for a child of such a humble family, Soane was sent to one of the boys' schools in Reading, in the town. And he quickly excelled at drawing, at architectural draftsmanship. He was a bright lad. And this ability to draw, this ability to understand buildings, quickly brought him to the attention of one of the more prominent architects working in London in the latter part of the 18th century, an architect called George Dance the Younger. Dance the Younger came from an architectural background. His family um, were architects. His father was an architect. Um, his father, for example, built the mansion house in the city of London, the Lord Mayor's residence. And Dance himself, Dance the Younger, was a professor of architecture at the Royal Academy. Now, Soane was introduced to him when he was 15, and Dance decided to take him on as a type of apprentice, bring him to London, and train him as an architect. When Soane was old enough, Dance encouraged him to enroll at the Royal Academy. And this is Sir William Chambers' Somerset House, um, the building that housed the Royal Academy, as well as the Admiralty, seen here from the river frontage, the river um, terrace which fronted onto the Thames. Now, the Royal Academy 
was like the Salon in Paris. Um, it held shows every summer of paintings, but also architecture began to creep in as one of the accepted art forms. Um, and this shows one of the, a, a later image of the great room at the Royal Academy with a Salon hang of paintings in exhibition. As a student at the Royal Academy, Soane was introduced to two of the greatest neoclassical architects dominating the architectural scene in Britain, Robert Adam and Sir William Chambers, the architect, in fact, of Somerset House. It's very clear from Soane's early drawings that he must have seen or had access to material that Adam was currently working on, that the Adam office was currently working on. And similarly with Sir William Chambers. Chambers was central in developing the young Soane's career. Now, as I said, we don't know that much about Soane's early life. He distanced himself from his humble origins, and really he dates his, in his own biography, he dates the beginning of his life as an architect to this period at the Royal Academy when he enters. One tragedy did befall Soane that seems to have had a profound impact upon the development of his architectural career, but also, I think, emotionally. His friend, James King, um, a fellow student at the Royal Academy, drowned in a boating accident on his birthday, drowned in Greenwich. Now, Soane was due to go on this excursion, this boating excursion, and decided that he'd rather stay and work on his designs. Um, and so, in fact, didn't succumb to this accident, didn't drown. But King's death sets off um, an obsession, if you like, with funerary architecture. Starting in 1777, Soane designs a series of mausolea for his dead friend. Of course, they're never realized. But throughout his career, he would return to these early designs, these early centrally planned funerary buildings, and in other aspects of his architecture, often appearing in quite unlikely places, the idea of the funerary monument, the tomb, would be a constant recurring theme. Now, the reason why Soane didn't particularly want to go on this boating excursion and why he didn't drown in the Thames outside Greenwich was that he was working towards gaining a gold medal at the Royal Academy. He had already won a silver medal for some of his projects, um, but he really wanted to win the student's gold medal. And in 1777, he was successful with this design, a triumphal bridge, much along the lines of the Ponte Vecchio in Florence or even Pulteney Bridge in Bath. This was presented to the Royal Academy. Soane successfully won the gold medal. Now, Sir William Chambers was so impressed by this design that he, in fact, showed it to King George III and encouraged the king to award Soane a travelling grant, what was known as the King's Travelling Grant, which would allow a student to go to Italy for three years, paid for by the king, in order to complete his artistic education. Soane was successful, and in 1778, he departs London, travelling to Rome through pre-revolutionary Paris. This later drawing, a Royal Academy lecture drawing, I think encapsulates what must have been the experience of students such as Soane travelling to Italy, viewing the great monuments of classical antiquity. Here we see a student clambering up a rather precarious ladder with a measuring rod in his hand, but of course wearing a stovepipe, a top hat, which gentleman architect wouldn't. But it also gives you an idea of the scale of these monuments, how incredibly, um, even in their half-ruined and half-buried state, the impact that they must have had. And you have to remember, Soane was from a very humble family. He was the son of a bricklayer. Imagine travelling to Rome and seeing this. It was absolutely astounding. And as he said himself, it generated a lifelong obsession 
an obsession with classical architecture. Just as that student in the lecture drawing sewn to, sketched out and planned out the various monuments that could be seen in Rome, such as the Arch of Titus. Specifically, it was the Temple of Vesta at Tivoli, just outside Rome, that seems to have held a great fascination for him. It was a building he would return to constantly in his mature career. And he would cite the temple, for example, in his first major building, the Bank of England. However, Soane also travelled to more difficult-to-reach places, Pistum, the former Greek colony to the south of Naples. Now, Pistum had been abandoned in late antiquity because a malarial swamp had developed around it. It was a city that had been completely forgotten about. It was recently rediscovered in the 18th century by chance because a carriage road was being driven from Naples to the south, and it bypassed the location of the former Greek colony. It was an incredibly important site for Soane. I have this image of him as a young student, forcing his way through the malarial swamps that still surrounded Pistum. It was also bandit country, um, so quite dangerous. If you imagine this young, young Englishman, this young lad with his drawing instruments on his back, pushing his way through this rather difficult terrain to reach the temples, the Greek Doric temples that stood at Pistum. And these are the sketches that he produced whilst visiting the site. It was an important lesson for him to view the temples at Pistum. Athens, of course, was even more difficult to reach for grand tourists or architectural students. It was still part of the Ottoman Empire. Not many architects or grand tourists went to visit Athens. So really, it was the former Greek colonies in, in Italy um, such as Pistum and those in Sicily, that allowed architects to understand the difference between later Roman interpretations of classical architecture and the original Greek um, precursors. And of course, he went to Pompeii and Herculaneum. He ascended Mount Vesuvius twice, um, and this little box with a fragment of cinder from the volcanic eruption is in fact the only souvenir that Soane brought back to him from his stay in Italy. Now, Soane stayed in Italy for two years. He didn't stay the full three years that his bursary or grant would have allowed him to do. And the reason being was that he was introduced, of course, to many of the aristocratic grand tourists who were in Italy at the same time, who were completing their own artistic education in quite considerable style, of course, unlike the rather impoverished Soane. In particular, two figures stand out from this period who would have an impact upon the development of Soane's career. Frederick Harvey, the Earl Bishop of Derry, and Thomas Pitt, Lord Camelford. Now, Frederick Harvey is an interesting figure, quite larger than life, as many of his family members proved to be in subsequent generations. Harvey wanted to be seen as a great patron of the arts. So whilst in Rome, he was promising lucrative commissions to various painters. He decided to take on the young Soane to be his architect, particularly working on his estate in Downhill in Ireland. Amongst the projects that Soane drew up for the Earl Bishop is this rather beautiful kennel, um, a doghouse, basically, <laughs> a rather grand doghouse. You can see Soane, obviously, has been influenced by Pistum. You have the Greek Doric order. But also he was looking, obviously, at buildings such as the Pantheon in Rome, this central drum with its cupola. The drum is decorated with a hunting scene. This is, after all, a kennel. And the top of the dome of the cupola has a rather charming figurative group of dancing dogs. And if you notice down here, instead of dog balls, the dogs are drinking from a fountain. Rather a grand kennel. Now, the Earl Bishop, unfortunately, really wasn't very good 
at actually realizing the various commissions that he'd um, asked from artists and architects. And Soane was, I'm afraid, a victim of this. Having spent two years trying to work with the old bishop, trying to get buildings such as this realized, Soane came to the conclusion that the old bishop just simply wasn't as good as his word. So he found himself back in Britain, in the United Kingdom, having cut short his period in Italy without a patron. So Soane decided to go back to London, the city he knew where he had contacts in the architectural business. And he decided to set up his own small one-man architectural practice in the city. And he worked mainly on country houses in the Norfolk area. And in fact, Letton Hall, which we see here from the garden front, dating to 1783, is Soane's first country house. It's not particularly imposing. Some might say it's not very interesting architecturally, but I think what you can see here and what will then later characterize much of Soane's work is this stripped-down classicism, this reduction of decorative motifs, also the use of brick. Brick is an important material to Soane as an architect, and also the large areas of glazing. All this will become very typical for Soane's later work. Now, if the Earl Bishop wasn't a very good patron, fortunately, Thomas Pitt, Lord Camelford, proved to be more fruitful. Camelford was the cousin of William Pitt the Younger, Prime Minister of Great Britain at the time, and Soane soon started producing commissions for the Pitt family. In 1788, architects were invited to submit plans for the rebuilding of the Bank of England. This was the most important architectural commission in London in the latter part of the 18th century. And it was through the support of William Pitt the Younger, Prime Minister, that Soane was awarded the commission. Now, this was quite unprecedented. He was a very young architect. He'd been mainly working on country houses. He wasn't that well-known. He was in his mid-30s. But nevertheless, Soane was awarded the Prime Commission in London. And this is a drawing by Gandhi, Joseph Michael Gandhi, Soane's greatest pupil of Soane's masterpiece, because that's really how you can only describe this building. The bank was monumental. Together with Somerset House, it was probably the largest public structure in the city. This extraordinary drawing shows the bank as a type of faux ruin, but it allows you to see the scale of the bank and also the innovative architectural use of space and light which Soane incorporated into it. Because even though, obviously, it is a neoclassical edifice, in many respects, Soane's Bank of England looked towards modern architecture and modernist practice. Instead of small, dark rooms in which, or offices in which to do business, Soane decided to open up the interior, creating a series of large, light-filled halls, spaces flowing one into another, almost anticipating open-plan architecture, if you like. Although it does refer to classical architecture in the decorative motifs, such as this fluting, the classical motifs are reduced, it's stripped down, if you like, almost anticipating, I suppose, certain elements of Art Deco architecture. Again, another drawing of, by Gandhi showing one of the interior halls. This is the new 4% office. Again, giving you a good idea of Soane's use of light and his manipulation of light and space. What's also very typical for Soane are these shallow domes, which you see here, this one illuminated by a lantern with ionic columns. And again, you have this reduced neoclassical decoration, these incised Greek key patterns on the ceiling. The success of the Bank of England project led to Soane becoming 
architect to the Office of Works. In other words, he became a governmental architect with a special remit for Westminster. Now, as part of that, he was in charge of rebuilding or ensuring that government buildings were kept in decent order, but also he wanted really to rebuild London. In 1827, he put forward a proposal for rebuilding the entire heart of the capital, creating a large processional avenue from Constitution Hill in the west. A series of triumphal arches through Downing Street would lead to Westminster Palace. In other words, a grand processional boulevard, very different to the Downing Street that we're used to on the news. Two triumphal arches, one to George III, one to George IV, symbolizing Britain's naval victories and also the victories of its land armies. Government offices would be housed in two palatial ranges of buildings, symmetrical ranges of buildings, which you see just here, the beginnings of them just here. Now, when Soane proposed this project for rebuilding London, um, he, of course, had in mind two cities, really, ancient Rome and Paris, Napoleon's Paris. He had visited Napoleon's Paris in 1814 in the sort of lull between the Hundred Days and, and Napoleon's exile to Elba. And he was very conscious of the fact that London, as the capital city of the world's largest maritime empire, as the capital city of the power that had just led the Allies in triumph over Napoleon and his forces, really couldn't compete with Paris. It didn't have grand public spaces. And it certainly couldn't compete with the glories of ancient Rome. So Soane puts forward this proposal to rebuild London along imperial lines. Now, unfortunately, the British government, in the wake of Napoleonic Wars throughout the 1820s, was in a serious state of recession, the British economy. Um, you could say plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The government simply couldn't afford to rebuild London along these lines. So out of this magnificent plan for Downing Street, um, he did actually work at number 10. He built a rather charming dining room with an antechamber and a similar series of rooms at number 11 Downing Street. He did, though, manage to rebuild part of Westminster Palace, the old palace that predated the fire of 1834, a grand new entranceway for the king to enter Parliament at its opening called the Scala Regia, the King's Stairs. It was the only part of this processional route that was actually constructed. So from this plan, the triumphal arches that would lead into the capital, the huge new palace for Green Park, which would make the palaces of St. Petersburg look tiny in comparison, nothing came of it. However, other buildings were realized. Soane was a Freemason, and he worked on the initial um, Freemason's Hall, not far from his house um, at number 13 Lincoln's Inn Fields. And this is a nocturnal view, again by J.M. Gandhi, Soane's greatest pupil, showing this incredible space. Again, notice Soane's use, or very evocative use, of lighting in this space, this dramatic shaft of light that falls down into the council chamber from the central oculus. Soane also worked on the Court of Chancery, again manipulating light in order to give the courtroom a sense of drama, and also, in a way, to give it a sense of otherworldliness. The light, mainly coming from the ceiling lantern, falls directly on the judge's chair. However, Soane's architecture, these buildings, didn't fare very well in the 19th century, I'm afraid. As I mentioned, in 1834, the old Palace of Westminster burnt down. This is Turner's dramatic um, rendition of the momentous occasion as the palace goes up in flames. In spite of the fact that Soane's Scala Regia survived the fire, his additions to the palace were swept away 
at once Charles Barry and Augustus Welby Northmore Pugin decided to rebuild the palace, um, the edifice that we're familiar with today. One of the peculiarities of Soane's architecture was that he often showed his buildings as ruins. I showed a slide depicting the Bank of England as a ruin. This is the rotunda of the Bank of England, again by Gandhi, shown as a ruin. In fact, you can see people actually dismantling the building in the view. There were two reasons why Soane did this. Very conscious of his place in architectural history, he wanted to show his architecture as it might appear to architects thousands of years in the future. They would go and see the ruins of his buildings and be inspired by them in the same way that he had been inspired by the ruins of Rome and of Peacedom. But it was also a clever device for allowing you to understand the interior structure of a building. He was the son of a bricklayer. He knew about the nuts and bolts of a building. It wasn't just the facade. So by showing it as a ruin, he allows you to see what's going on inside. But this is also a very prescient image because Soane's great first masterpiece was in fact demolished in the 1920s. So Soane's vision of his buildings in ruins came about rather sooner than he anticipated. This is the rotunda um, as it's being dismantled in the 1920s, a photograph. Of his great buildings in London, only one still really stands, and that's Dulwich Picture Gallery, the first public art gallery in Britain. It opened in 1817. Now, this is a very significant building with regard to the history of museums in Britain and the Anglo-Saxon world in that it's the first purpose-built British art gallery, the first purpose-built art gallery anywhere in Britain. And its influence would reverberate through the 19th century, particularly in Britain, of course, but also in America. One of the peculiarities of Dulwich is that it incorporates a mausoleum in its centre. Here's an external view. A mausoleum to the benefactors or founders of the picture gallery, Sir Francis Bourgeois and Noel des Enfants, two agents, art handlers, art dealers, who bequeathed the collection to Dulwich College. The mausoleum, and this is um, based very much on an earlier plan that Soane um, devised for Francis Bourgeois. This isn't the mausoleum as it was executed. actually opens onto the gallery spaces themselves, and these are the galleries. Very simple architecturally, a series of interconnecting, interlocking cube and double cube rooms. Hardly any articulation of the interior. There's no real decoration. It's very, very simple. The great innovation that Soane incorporates into Dulwich is the use of top lighting. The paintings are illuminated by these lanterns. There are no side windows. And as I said, a highly influential building, at least in the English-speaking world. Probably the greatest expression of this is the Sainsbury Wing in the National Gallery by Venturi and Scott Brown, almost a direct citation of Soane's earlier work at Dulwich. Also, the National Gallery of, of Canada in Ottawa, again, a direct citation of Soane's 1811 Dulwich Gallery. But Soane's architecture also pops up in slightly more unlikely places. Philip Johnson was greatly influenced by Soane, particularly the use of shallow canopy domes over spaces. This is um, the guest house or the brick house in New Canaan, Soane's residence. And again, the AT&T building, citing Soane once more. The use of a very plain exterior and these superimposed arches, sewn using just the form of the arches and the brickwork in order to articulate the facade of the Royal Hospital Chelsea, which was begun in 1807, and Johnson's AT&T building of 1984. Sewn even turning up in Japan. 
um, Vori's Hall by Arata Izasaki. Again, this use of shallow domes, which is very, very typical of Sohn, on a square footing. And more recently, the Liquidrome in Berlin, a swimming pool. Well, I think one of the more unusual citations of Sohn is in this car park in Madrid, um, where these shallow domes on square footings once more appear. And more notably, a familiar landmark of any London street, the famous red telephone boxes by Giles Gilbert Scott. They take their inspiration actually from quite a poignant piece of architecture, the tomb that Sohn designed for his family and which he himself would lie in, this top part, the canopy, obviously being echoed by Gilbert Scott. And it's appropriate now that we turn to Sohn's family because really in order to understand the significance of the collection, why the Sohn is a museum, one needs to understand the personal aspects of his life as much as the professional aspects of his career as an architect. As I mentioned, Soane married in 1784. He married Eliza Wyatt, who we see here in this portrait by Van Assen. Now, she was the niece of George Wyatt, a very prosperous London surveyor, and he had quite a large portfolio of properties across the capital. Eliza was his only living relative, and on his death in 1790, she inherited most of this stock of property. Soane's own career was taking off. So together with her income from these rental properties and Soane's own income from his architectural practice, the Soanes became quite wealthy. They had two sons, John Soane Jr. and George, the red-headed boy, the younger son. Soane wanted, particularly his older son, to become an architect. He wanted to found his own architectural dynasty. Both boys went to Cambridge, John first, and then George followed him. He also wanted them to become influenced or interested in art. And to this end, Soane decided to purchase a country residence, Pittshanger Manor in Ealing. They lived initially at number 12, Lincoln's Inn Fields, but this was bought as their country villa. Now, this is, Soane completely rebuilt this house. It still stands, and he wanted it really to act as a type of point of inspiration where his children could view his collections of art, which he started amassing, which I'll come to. But also this house acts in a strange way because Soane talks about it in terms of it being a self-portrait. So for Soane, his architecture and the way in which his collections are displayed are inextricably linked to who he is. A self-portrait, a house is a self-portrait. I think that's why Soane, in many respects, anticipates so much of modern installation art that he's using um, objects in a way in which other collectors at the time simply would not. Now, the collections themselves were mainly architectural, but there were some outstanding paintings. The Rake's Progress, purchased in 1804 for Pittshanger Manor by William Hogarth. Canaletto, free canalettos were purchased for the collections. In fact, this one is considered one of the six best canalettos in existence. And antiquities, because of course, sewn was obsessed with the classical past. And these were installed within the rooms of Pittshanger Manor to act as a type of academy, if you like, for the inspiration of his sons. They would learn from these objects. Now, unfortunately, Soane was disappointed in his sons. Um, they weren't interested in art. They weren't interested in architecture. And so, in 1810, it was decided to sell Pittshanger Manor and the collections were transferred to the present museum, number 13, Lincoln's in Fields. Now, when writing or thinking about this talk, I suddenly realized how on earth do you talk about an incredibly complex architectural space, a three-dimensional space, 
using two-dimensional slides. I think the only way you can experience the museum and understand it is to actually go there. But number 13, Lincoln's in Fields, is probably one of the most extraordinary museum interiors that you're ever likely to encounter. The architecture itself refers to, because it's, purely, it's pure Sone architecture, refers in many respects to Sone's larger buildings. So the breakfast room at number 13, a tiny intimate space, is an echo of the great halls that Sone planned for the Bank of England. The building itself can be seen as a type of laboratory for architecture because Sone incorporated lots of new building techniques. He used plate glass extensively, a material that was just being made or manufactured on an industrial scale. Gaslighting as well. And he also incorporated a very innovative central heating system into the building. So just as much as it's about the classical past, the building looks forward to future developments in architectural practice. Now, one of the unusual aspects, as I mentioned earlier, these incised lines that are very typical of Sohn's architecture. Sohn's innovative use of material, his reduction of classical ornament, weren't really understood by critics at the time. And in fact, these incised lines that you can see on the dome of the breakfast room were compared to the types of scoring marks that you make on a joint of pork when you want to roast it to get good crackling. And his architecture was called loins of pork style by one rather cruel critic. But I digress. Every single room in the house is crammed with objects. This tiny little study, for example, holds some of the earliest classical objects that entered the collections um, from the Tatum collection. This is Soane's study where he himself worked. Soane also looked to the Gothic past for inspiration. In the monk's parlour, he created a type of antiquarian's cabinet, if you like, filled with objects redolent of the Middle Ages. The more private rooms of the house, such as um, the South Drawing Room, although simple in form, also echo Soane's innovative stripped-down neoclassical style. What's also unusual about the house is there doesn't seem to be um, a clear border between interior and exterior spaces. So as you walk around it, you're not quite sure whether you're looking through a window or whether you're seeing a reflection of a space in a mirror. And a series of courtyards within the structure further create this feeling of ambivalence between the interior and exterior world. Now, the house wasn't just a residence because it was also Soane's architectural office. This was where he worked and where his own architectural practice was housed. And the upper drawing office in the top part of the museum, which you see here, is in fact the only architect's office to survive of this period anywhere in Europe. It's an incredibly rare survival. Not only do we have the various casts and models that Stone's architects were using, but also the very desks on which they drew. Um, you can still see marks where they scored to get straight lines in, it scored into the wood. Um, it's a very evocative space. But Soane also wanted his house to act as a museum. In 1806, Soane became a professor of architecture at the Royal Academy. And he was rather disappointed by the facilities that his students had at the Royal Academy. And so he decided to rearrange his collection and open it up as a public museum or as a museum for his students. In 1806, the entire back of number 13, Lincoln's and Fields, is rebuilt to display the collection of casts, architectural models, and antique fragments. And this gives you an idea of the complexity of the displays which Soane installed within the back part of the house. This is the museum corridor, with a life cast taken from the capital and entablature of the Temple of Castor Pollux 
in Rome. And you remember I showed you an image of a student climbing up a ladder measuring Corinthian capital. Well, that's from that same temple. Because it was a teaching collection, Sohn mingled plaster casts with genuine antique fragments. So the capital from Castor and Pollux is a cast, but we also have, for example, pilaster capitals actually taken from the Pantheon and architectural models. In many respects, the displays in the back of the museum, the museum part of, of the house, were intended to act as a type of alternative grand tour for Sohn's students and for his architects. 1809, the continent, of course, is cut off from Britain because of the Napoleonic Wars. His students couldn't go to Italy to see these monuments for themselves. Also, they probably wouldn't have had enough money to do that. So what Sohn is doing is he's bringing the classical past into the heart of London because every major monument of Rome and also some of Greece are represented in these displays. The heart of the museum is the dome area. Again, a sort of palimpsest of objects layered one on top of another. And at the center of it, Sohn installs his own portrait bust. Um, just beneath, you can't see in this image, I'm afraid, there are two little figures, one of Michelangelo, one of Raphael. Sohn making a comment on the role of, or the position of architecture as the greater of the, of the two other arts, greater than sculpture, greater than painting, because architecture incorporates both those arts. At the top of the house, in addition to the life casts of various parts of classical buildings, Sohn installed a type of miniaturized version, I suppose, of the entire collection, um, the model room, in the center of which he had a stand built to display his various models. The main model that you see here shows Pompeii, as it appeared excavated in the 1820s, a cork model. But other monuments are represented, such as the Temple of Vestra at Tivoli, and the various temples seen in Pistum. But he also incorporated his own architectural models within this collection. And here we see one of the offices of the bank. So again, Sohn is positioning himself within a lineage of classical architecture. We're actually, at the moment, um, reinstating the model room. So if you come to the Sohn in about 2013, you'll be able to see how Sohn wanted these objects initially displayed. But at the heart of the museum, the most important antiquity, Sohn turned to an earlier civilization. In 1824, Sohn purchased this extraordinary object. And here we see it um, in a watercolor of 1825. And this is it in reality. It's the alabaster sarcophagus, or rather inner coffin, of Seti I. The most important Egyptian antiquity in any British collection. Um, certainly the British Museum doesn't have an object of comparable value. And one of the most important Egyptian antiquities to survive in any collection worldwide. It was discovered by Giovanni Belzoni in Seti's tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Belzoni being, of course, one of the pioneer Egyptologists. Now, initially, this object was offered to the trustees of the British Museum. They turned down Belzoni's request. He wanted quite a considerable sum of money, about £2,000 for the object. The reason being they had just purchased the Elgin marbles. If you remember, I mentioned that Britain was in a serious economic recession. They had come into huge criticism in the press 
for purchasing broken old bits of stone. So the trustees felt that they couldn't incur the wrath of the press and the public by spending more money on SETI's sarcophagus. And in spite of the fact that about six other European governments were interested in purchasing this one object, Sohn snatched it up. Now, he was so delighted to have this incredible object in the collection that he held a three-day party, or over the course of three evenings, a party was held at the museum. The entire house was lit by colored lights, and the sarcophagus itself was illuminated below. It's a solid piece of alabaster. At night, if you illuminate it from, from beneath, it glows the most amazing pink color. It's quite an extraordinary effect. And we know that the great and the good of Regency London, the Duke of Sussex, for example, Turner, Soane's great friend, Coleridge, all came to view the illuminated sarcophagus and celebrate its installation within the museum. Now, 1824 was a significant date for the history of the collections within the house, because I think it really marks the moment when going from a, a museum of architecture, a collection, a teaching collection for his students and, and for people interested in architecture, Soane decides to change the museum into a national institution, if you like. Now, he had collected British art in the past. Um, as I said, Turner was his great friend, and two works by Turner, two watercolors by Turner, had been in, in the collection in the past. But in 1824, Soane decides to rearrange at least the paintings in the collection. He decides to create a new picture room in which to display his holdings of British, mainly contemporary British art. Um, that's the peculiarity of, of the collection. We don't have that much old master painting um, in the collection. We have one work by Fra Bartolomeo and one fragment of a Raphael cartoon. Soane was mainly interested in contemporary work. He creates the picture room in 1824 in order to display these objects, these works, to their optimum. 1824, as I said, is a significant date, because in 1823, National Gallery opens in London. Now, the National Gallery, as it was originally displayed, um, it was in a townhouse, 100 Pall Mall, um, the former house of Baron Angerstein. And his collection of 38 paintings, which were purchased by the British government, acted as the core collection of the National Gallery. So not a very significant collection by any stretch of the imagination. And they're housed, as I say, this is a view of one of the rooms, within a former townhouse, so not a purpose-built gallery. And of course, Soane had built Britain's first purpose-built gallery at Dulwich. And I think Soane's picture room, in many respects, is a challenge thrown down to the National Gallery. In this tiny room, Soane, in fact, shows 130 paintings. The Angerstein Collection, the National Gallery, has one cycle of paintings by Hogarth. Soane already had one cycle of paintings by Hogarth, the Rake's Progress. In 1824, he augments this by buying the Election Series. He also, of course, displays his canalettos within the picture room. So the, the Election Series augments the Rake's Progress. So we have two cycles of paintings by Hogarth, in fact, the largest collection of Hogarths in the country. Also works by Piranesi. These are drawings by Piranesi produced for his etchings showing the temples at Peastum, which Soane visited as a student. But also contemporary British painters, um, Henry Fusley. Soane was particularly interested in collecting the work of fellow royal academicians. Um, unfortunately, in many respects, this consideration of collecting friends' work led him to make some mistakes. There are some very awful paintings by um, Sir Francis Bourgeois in the collection hung alongside these masterpieces. But nevertheless, the important thing is that unlike the National Gallery, which 
didn't collect or show contemporary British art, Soane is opening up a public space in London for the display of contemporary British artists. In fact, he commissioned Turner to create this work, which would have hung originally in the picture room, the Forum Romanum. Turner accepted the commission, painted this monumental canvas showing the ruins of Rome. You have the Arch of Titus there and the Basilica of Maxentius um, to, to the right. Now, when Soane was presented with this painting, he didn't like it at all. So, in fact, he didn't pay for it. Um, it's, no long, it's not in our collection. It's in the Tate um, Gallery. Turner and Soane didn't fall out over it, though. However, he does buy this work by Turner in 1831, Admiral van Tromp's barge. Now, the picture room also acts as an exhibition space for Soane's own work, because inside the... Um, I should point out just how he can fit 130 paintings into such a small space. Soane creates this rather ingenious series of moving walls. So, in fact, the walls of the picture room open up like leaves in a book, allowing him to hang more paintings on the internal planes. And one of these openings acts as a type of exhibition of his own work. Large watercolours by jo Joseph Michael Gandhi showing Soane's buildings, the ones that were presented to the Royal Academy in their yearly shows. Within this collection, within this display of works of Soane's architecture, is this extraordinary capriccio, showing all of the buildings that Soane constructed in his lifetime, from the Bank of England, early country houses, through to Dulwich Picture Gallery, and the museum itself. So in many respects, the museum, in a sort of self-referential way, is institutionally collecting itself, or referring to itself, the companion piece to that painting is this work, again by Gandhi, which shows the buildings that Soane wanted to complete but didn't, um, including, right at the top, one of the mausolea he designed for James King, his drowned friend. And again, this idea of self-referentiality, that the museum references itself or institutionally catalogues itself, can be seen in this work, again part of that display of Soane's architecture within the picture room. This actually shows the interior, a composite view of the various interiors of the museum, the breakfast room, the library dining room, the monument court, and Soane's little study. And here a tiny detail, um, again this idea of self-referentiality, a tiny detail of the first Gandhi I showed you, a tiny portrait of Soane working at his plans, a model of the Bank of England, to the left. Now, Soane theorized um, his approach to the house, to the museum, to collecting in a series of publications. In 1827, the first description to the museum is published. It's written by John Britton, and really it encapsulates Soane's approach. It's entitled The Union of Architecture, Sculpture, and Painting. For Soane, the idea of somehow separating out the architectural practices was unimaginable, unthinkable. In this respect, I think he does anticipate a modern approach to curating a museum where you take on different aspects of design, architecture and art and don't show them as being completely separated out. Sculpture also played an important role in Soane's museum. Um, in 1834 to 35, he creates what is, in effect, the first public sculpture gallery of contemporary British sculpture in London, the Tivoli Recess. 
Now, this doesn't exist at the moment. Um, it was dismantled in the 19th century, but we're reinstating it again. So if you come back to the museum in 2013, you'll see this tiny little space. In spite of its size, it's very significant. It held works by artists such as Chantry, Banks, and Flaxman. Flaxman being really the first British sculptor to make any sort of impact or mark upon the wider European artistic scene. And in fact, the 1830s really marks a complete change in the way in which Soane collects, because he starts collecting um, objects that have nothing really to do with architecture or the classical past. He starts buying in medieval manuscripts, gems, and so on, and, and coins, creating um, really what can be described as a universal collection. In 1835, two years after he retired, he retires in 1833, Soane was finally honoured for his architectural achievements. The architects of England awarded him a gold medal. Um, a wonderful party was held in his honour in the council chamber of the Freemasons Hall, which Soane had designed. A bust of Soane, the Chantry bust in fact, was placed in the centre of the hall, um, decorated with garlands of flowers. It seemed that Soane had really reached the apogee of his career, of his achievements. However, as I mentioned, Soane's architecture didn't fare very well in the 19th century, in spite of the fact that he had been awarded the gold medal by the architects of England for his achievements. It soon became clear that critics of Soane were quite vocal. I mentioned that Pugin and Charles Barry, when Westminster Palace had to be rebuilt, swept away Soane's improvements to the old building, which had survived the fire. Well, this, I think, is a telling indication of just how unfashionable Soane's architecture was beginning to be in the late 1830s. The facade of the museum, number 13 Lincoln's in Fields, contrasted with the Rue de Horloge in Rouen. Soane's architecture was seen as perhaps being too idiosyncratic and perhaps a little bit too connected to the period of the Regency for later architects to appreciate him. Towards the end of his life, in spite of the adulation of many architects, Soane was really quite a lonely figure. Poignantly, he comes up with a type of alter ego towards the end of his life, a figure called Padre Giovanni, Father John, obviously a play on his own name. And he describes this figure, Father John, as a type of hermit, a monk who would go into his parlor, the monk's parlor, this sort of antiquarian cabinet Soane designed, to go and contemplate the ruins of his cloister. When Father John Padre Giovanni dies, he's buried in the monk's yards underneath this monument. Now, of course, Padre Giovanni was a fictional figure. He didn't exist. Tomb, though, isn't empty. The inscription on the tomb doesn't say Padre Giovanni. It says, alas, poor Fanny. In fact, Soane, Eliza Soane's lapdog, Fanny the Manchester Terrier, shown here as the architect's dog with, with the Erephaeum in Athens in the distance, is buried in the monk's tomb. Now, the reason why Soane was such an isolated figure, such a lonely figure in his later years, really goes back to his relationship with his two sons. And I want to quickly end on, on this, because it really explains why the museum is a public museum, a national museum. As I said, he wanted his boys to somehow carry on the family name, particularly John. He wanted John to become an architect. Well, John was rather sickly as a young man, um, and he continued in Ill, Ill health. Uh, and died at the comparatively young age of 37. He died of consumption. And his ill health really precluded him from becoming a success. He didn't really amount to much. That left George, the younger son, to continue the family tradition. Well, 
the relationship between Sir John, Soane and George was incredibly fractious. They basically hated each other. George went to Cambridge, um, couldn't really settle on a career. He was quite an extravagant young man. He amassed quite considerable debts. Having left university, he decided to try, and try his hand at the theatre, literature. He married into a theatrical family, set up his own, had, had his own children, um, particularly his, his son, Frederick. But he continued spending money. Often he would turn to his mother, Eliza, asking her to help to bail him out. She would often borrow money from her friends so as not to let Sir John Soane know that she was paying her son's debts. Now, this all came to a head in the winter of 1814 to 15. George had been accused of fraud, and he was threatened with deportation to Australia. Now, his debt was paid off. The money that it was alleged he'd stolen had been paid off, but it still left the bulk of his outstanding debts. So in the winter of 1814 to 15, he was sent to debtor's prison. Not a very pleasant experience. Now, on his release, a series of anonymous articles, two articles appeared in one of the London papers, a paper called The Champion. And these, quite heavily and in quite an quite a, quite a incisive way, criticised Sir Johnson's architecture. In particular, the Bank of England was pointed out as being a nonsensical building, Remnants of mausoleums, caryatids, pillars from temples, ornaments from the Pantheon, all heaped together with a perversion of taste that is truly admirable. He steals a bit hit there and a bit here. That's what the author said about the Bank of England. The museum itself, number 13 Lincoln's in Fields, also came into criticism. The most extraordinary instance of this perversity of taste and dullness of invention is to be found in the artist's house in Lincoln's in Fields. The exterior seems as if it were intended to convey a satire upon himself. It looks like a record of the departed and can only mean he has reared this mausoleum for the enshrinement of his body. Now, Sir Johnson spent quite a lot of time trying to unmask the identity of the anonymous author. But, of course, it was obvious to anyone. It was George. Having been sent to debtor's prison, he wanted to take public revenge against his father for not helping him. Soane tried to keep the identity of George as the author away from Eliza, but in the end, she found out. Soane showed her the articles, and she exclaimed, George has dealt me my death blows. And these, in fact, are the articles. I'll never be able to hold my head up again. Now, unfortunately, she had been suffering from gallstones at the time, and two months after George's identity was unmasked, she died. Soane, of course, blamed his son, for his wife's death. It took a great deal of persuasion for Soane to not cut off George and his family completely. However, worse was to follow. In 1832, it was discovered that George had fathered an illegitimate child with his own sister-in-law, who had been staying with them, and was trying to pass it off as his own child, and when that didn't work, tried to send it to the Foundling Hospital, to an orphanage. But, of course, George's identity as, as the father was known, so the orphanage didn't accept the child. That was a step too far for Sir John Soane. He had hoped that his grandson, Frederick, also would become an architect following his footsteps. But it turned out that Frederick was rather more interested in a certain Captain Westwood. Um, so Soane again felt that he couldn't leave the house and its collections to either Frederick or George. 
1833, the year of his retirement, Soane left the house and the collections to the British nation. That's why we are a national museum. And I'll just end by mentioning that Soane did leave one thing to George in his will, um, to his only surviving son. He left this, the framed and mounted articles that George had written about his father with this dedication to George Soane. These presented papers with the glass and frame are bequeathed. Quite a laconic statement at the end of his life. But nevertheless, in spite of this poignant story of family alienation, we have the best preserved Regency Townhouse Museum, probably in Europe, um, still in existence at number 13, Lincoln's Inn Fields. Thank you. Thank you so very much. If there are any questions, we'll take 10 minutes. Yes. Uh, I wonder, I know there are some parts of the building being mm. uh, reconnected to, to the Soane Museum at the moment. Are these parts uh, reconstructed according to Soane's uh, sketches, or are they reinterpreted yeah. by Chris and, and no, What? What... What we're reconstructing at the moment are the private apartments, so the bedroom that Soane died in, um, the Tivoli recess, this tiny little gallery of contemporary British sculpture. We're rehanging the picture room back to its original hang. In the 19th century, following Soane's death in 1837, January 1837, um, curators obviously moved in and took over the second floor where the private apartments were. And over the period of the 19th century, these were completely altered and changed. The furniture still exists, bar the bed. We have all the works of art that were in these rooms. We've recently even uncovered the original wallpaper. So this reconstruction, or rather restoration, is going to be a mix. Where possible, the original artifacts are going to be placed back in the museum in their precise locations. Where we have to, certain elements will be reconstructed. The reason why we're doing this, which I failed to mention, is that the Act of Parliament that Soane drew up in 1833 to leave the house to the nation had a clause in it which stated that nothing in the museum should change from the moment of his death. And we know that even the bedroom, the bathroom, they're mentioned in the descriptions that are published from 1827 onwards of the house and it's likely that you were expected to visit these, these rooms, even though they were quite private, as if you were visiting any other part of the museum. So we're trying basically to get back to the spirit of the Act of Parliament, which Soane instigated in 1833 by putting back all the changes, back to the state of the house in January 1837 when he died, because that's what he wanted you to see. So it's a mix of restoration and the original material. The idea of having pictures that you can fold out like mm. that, was it a common idea then or was it actually Soane's own we idea? We know that Thomas Hope, great collector, same period really, he also had that in his house, a way of showing more, more works of art than possible in a small space. Also, European print sellers seem to have used this device, but on a much smaller scale. What's significant about Soane is that he's doing it on such a large scale um, within this tiny, tiny little room, the walls literally come out. They're huge. And it's a way, of course, of making this very small gallery 
as big as a large public art gallery if you put the walls end to end, way of competing with the Angerstein collection, sort of core of the National Gallery. So it's not exactly a new idea, but it's the scale that's different and the fact that it's the only example of this that still survives. I don't think there's any other house or museum that still has this system in place. When he donated to the, to the, to the country, to the mm. nation, was that with an endowment at the time? And, and, yes. and, 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 I'm, and I have a follow-up question. Mm. I mean, now we read in the last couple of years about the Barnes Foundation in, yes. in, in the United States, in outside Philadelphia, where there was also some very specific rules in terms of, of uh, the trust that was yeah. handling that estate, and which included, for example, that you were not allowed to photograph anything or change it. Sure. And I think there is a, I'm not sure if there's a tendency, but it, it continues over time, of course, when, when donations are given to the state or to the municipality or to a certain level. Do you have any thoughts about it? I mean, and this is, this is a, a unique place and it's a unique time and it's part of, of the national heritage. But your thoughts about this, uh, how, how is it always a nation that should accept these gifts or, and, and, and these rules? And, and, and it would be interesting to hear how, how he set it up to hopefully guarantee that these charters were, were lived again. Of course, it's, it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because, yes, this is an act of generosity, but at the same time, you are creating a monument to yourself, particularly if you stipulate that nothing should change, that the collections, by dint of the way in which they're installed, must be interpreted in the way in which the original collector intended them to be interpreted. What I think is quite interesting about the Sone is that the, he's doing this at a period where people are still debating the role of the public art museum, particularly in Britain, in light of nationalization of the French royal collections and, of course, also the appropriation of collections from Germany and Italy by Napoleon. That's the reason really why the British government was very reluctant to take on the collections that form Dulwich Picture Gallery. It predates the National Gallery, but it's not a national gallery. So I think in that respect, the period that we're talking about gives a context for this action. Although you can see it as so monumentalizing himself, it's still a radical move that he's doing by making collections available to the public it was considered politically radical in Britain for a very long time. It's only until in 1823 that the National Gallery is founded, and then it's a very small collection. Um, the British Museum, of course, is older, dates to 1753, that's when it's open to the public, but you, had to, you could only go there on application. You apply for a ticket and you wouldn't be allowed to view the collections on your own. I think Sohn opening up his collections in 1809 as a museum, he terms it a museum, although the Act of Parliament is later, is a radical move. Sohn's collecting and displaying of contemporary British art, again, it displays his own taste, but it is also a very radical move, and it's in marked contrast to what was happening in other public institutions in the country. With regard, I suppose, to how you deal with that now as a curator... Yes, it can be problematic. We're not a closed museum. Other museums that are set up that way, such as the Wallace Collection, I don't know if you're, I'm sure you're familiar with it, they're not allowed, for example, to lend any of their works. The works as they're installed have to be 
in the museum. Our clause is ambiguous. We can lend objects. We also um, have artists, contemporary artists, coming in to work with the collections, interpret the spaces in a new way. And I think that's a way of getting past this idea of the monument, the mausoleum, the collection becoming a, a, a monument to the deceased collector, a way of creating new methods of interpretation. Because we can't move objects around within the displays, but we can insert things that create sort of ruptures, if you like, within that display and allow people to well, sort of open up the display for, uh, to allow a discourse about, about this. Has that answered the question? I'm not sure if I have, but anyway. Th I think those are my thoughts on, on this idea of, of bequeathed collections that have these clauses in them. Thank you again very much for this wonderful lecture.